Well, good evening. You know, speaking of being humbled, uh, my wife made a comment to me uh, earlier this week. She said, you know, Mike Harrison never tucks his shirt in, but you always tuck yours in. I said, well, it's because I'm a nerd. I told you that already. So tonight, as you can see, no shirt tucked in, and she gets to church and she says, oh, I think maybe I like your shirt better tucked in. <laughs> but either way, I'm a rebel tonight. I'm going for it. So if you would, uh, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to be back in the ninth chapter. We're going to be picking up in verse 7 this evening, maybe. And as you make your way that direction, and we get the slides up that direction, what we talked about last time is uh, in the first six chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes, what we really saw uh, is Solomon looking at things from a hedonistic standpoint. So he lived life as big as you could live life. He went after things as big as you could go after things. And at the end of it, what he came up with was everything is vanity, right? Everything is hevel, that all the pleasures you can go after, eventually they all leave you wanting something more. So you can be flying down Highway 67 with your motorcycle going and your mullet just waving in the wind, but at some point in time, it's just never going to be quite enough. And so in chapter 7, we see this transition from Solomon the hedonist, he then transitions to Solomon the moralist. So now he's looking at everything from more of a moralistic standpoint. Instead of being the, the kid flying around in his Lamborghini like a wild man, he was looking at it like a Midwestern, red meat-eating, you know, Republican. That's, that's the new Solomon. But the issue is, he still is looking at things from the vantage point of the man under the sun. He still is looking at things through his earthly eyes, and what he sees is, even from this moralistic standpoint, even up on my podium, uh, it's still all a waste, right? Even good people, bad things happen to. So no matter which way he decides to live, whether he's living for the world in a hedonistic standpoint or living for the world from a moralist standpoint, we still see the same things in both sides. So that is going to lead us to chapter 9, verse 7. If you turn there with me. But I, needless to say, what you didn't see on the first slide is I entitled the message tonight, Paradise City. So that's really what Solomon was after, right? Paradise City where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. That's the thing he's looking for. So it was really tremendous. If you would have saw it, you would have been amazed by the slide I put together. But we'll get there eventually. So in, in verse 7, pick up with me as we read, Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. So the first place Solomon begins with is, listen, I've gone through nine chapters of basically laying it out to you that everything that you could experience from a hedonistic standpoint to a moralistic standpoint, it's all hevel. It's this Hebrew word for vapor. So if that's the case, if it doesn't matter what we do, doesn't matter what vantage point we come from, you might as well go have a drink, right? It's happy hour. Let's go have ourselves a toddy. That's essentially what he's coming up with, that go and eat your bread and drink it with wine. It's this eat, drink, and be merry mindset. And so that's the, the place that Solomon is at. But again, remember, he's looking at it from the vantage point and from the viewpoint as the man living under the sun. 
And I think we could all agree that culturally, that that viewpoint of eat, drink, and be merry is one that we, uh, as Americans, we grab a hold of that thing, right? We're, we are looking to go out and have ourselves a good old time. But instead, let me share with you, if we, instead of looking at these verses just from the uh, eyes of the man under the sun, let's look at them instead as, uh, from the eyes of a, a man looking through his spirit. And so in this first verse, what you'll find is something interesting. He says, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Now, bread and wine, biblically, are always a picture of joy and communion, if you want to look at it that way, right? So this idea of eating bread and drinking wine, this is something that that people come together and they do with a joyous heart. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 14. And what you'd see in verse 18 is Abraham having an interesting encounter with this mysterious character, Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, we don't know a lot about him, but most Bible scholars would agree that this uh, king of Salem, which we now know as Jerusalem, was a Christophany. He was an early prefigurement of Jesus Christ, uh, even in the Old Testament. So here's this Christophany, if you want to go there with me, and he's appearing now before Abraham. Abraham is coming back from a victorious battle. He and 318 men have won this battle over these five kings, and they've brought back his nephew Lot. And what he finds is Melchizedek comes to him in verse 18, and then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. And he said, and he blessed them and said, Blessed be Abraham of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So here we see bread and wine brought out to Abraham, and what? It was a celebration, right? Over a victory over their enemies. So that's, that's kind of an interesting you know, side note to look at this bread and the wine. But then if you think about uh, all the way back in Matthew chapter 26, we see Jesus there at the Last Supper, and he's having communion. And he's doing what? He's breaking bread to begin with. It's to symbolize the breaking of his body giving up everything so that the, the men, not just the men at this table, but so that even we could have an opportunity at, at redemption. And as Jesus passes around the wine, he takes a drink of this glass of wine. We've talked about this before. Jesus is actually drinking the cup of wrath. Right? They, they wouldn't pass around one cup at the communion table. They would actually pass around four cups. And the cup that Jesus talks about when he's drinking, he's drinking the cup of wrath, But then the cup he shares with all these men around the Last Supper table is the cup of redemption, right? He's redeeming them. So we see the redemptive qualities now of bread and wine. And this is really what takes place when we have communion, right? We're coming together with Christ, and then there it is, Paradise City. See how good that was? I even got that up there, where the grass is green and the girls are pretty. And I even got a guy riding a motorcycle on a mullet. You know how long it took me to find that picture? On that first slide. All right. So we're, we're halfway through this slide now in Matthew 26 in the Lord's Supper. And the point really is, as we reread this verse now under the, with the eyes of the Spirit, instead of just the eyes of the man under the sun, then you see, go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has accepted your works. Right? You see actually a message of redemption tied right in here into Solomon's message. 
So as a little bit of a sidebar, uh, I've told you before, the, the kids like to have these uh, church services down in the basement. So Joel was, again, he's the pastor of our church. Not the pastor, but the pastor. Um, so he, as our pastor, he uh, passed out communion the other night. So he passes out the communion elements, and he says, wait, I need to bless them. And he says, I give this to you in the name of the sun, the moon, and the Holy Ghost. And that was what we were to take, the communion. So, like, well, he doesn't quite have it down, but I think the Spirit's there. Going, I don't know what that had to do with anything other than we were having the Lord's Supper right there. So then this next verse, we see, Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Now, again, uh, from just the eyes of this earth, what we see Solomon basically saying is, let's not only have a drink and have a big old party because this whole thing's going down, but let's put on our fancy clothes while we're doing it. Let's put on a little of that brute aftershave, splash that on, and let's go have ourselves a party while we dress up. But if we look at it under the eyes of the Spirit, we see that uh, the garments and the oil are both a symbol of purity and the Holy Spirit. So in Isaiah, just a little bit to the right, in Isaiah chapter 16, as he's talking about garments, he says, wash yourselves... In Isaiah 16, 16, he says, Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes and cease to do evil. And then if we're to jump down in the middle of verse 18, he says, And though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. So we see these clean garments being put on by God's holy people, right? And I didn't put this reference up there on the screen, but even all the way at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, what you'll see there is the saints that are gathered around the throne of God, what they've got on, they've got on holy garments, white, cleansed garments. So then again, we, we see the symbolism that's taking place here, even in Ecclesiastes, as we're to put on these garments that aren't made this way by anything we're doing. These are things that are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So then the, the oil that we read about. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, we see this example, which I put up there on the screen so you don't have to flip quite as much through the Bible. But throughout the Old Testament, you'll see people being anointed with oil. And every time you see oil in the Old Testament, it's a biblical constant. That's the Spirit actually being poured out upon them. So in the case of, of David here, he's being anointed by Samuel, and we see that the oil going down over him, and it actually says the Holy Spirit then came upon him. So this idea of the oil being placed on his head is actually the Holy Spirit being placed on his head, which is interesting if we flip to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, as Jesus is talking here, and it's right before his ascension into heaven. And what does he say? He says, but you shall receive the power when the Holy Spirit has come Upon you. There's that same word, right? Upon. In the Greek, this is that preposition, epi. This actually means to be, to be poured out over the top and to, poured down, to be poured down upon. So, again, I give you all those examples so that as we read Solomon's writings and we understand what his mindset is, but then if we put on our spiritual goggles, we see now, let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Let yourself be purified and, be, and have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, be poured down upon you, right? We're, we're, we're being anointed. So it's an interesting way to look at these verses. 
and we can have ourselves a little happy hour, right? A lot different kind of happy hour than what Solomon was referencing. So next, let's look at having a happy wife equals a happy life. Now, in verse 9 of Ecclesiastes 9, Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun. All of your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life, and in the labor which you perform under the sun. So, again, what Solomon is saying is, if all this is vanity, then go out with your wife and have yourselves a good time. Just party it up, enjoy your wife, have a great time, because it's all vanity anyway. All this, this is your only portion. You're getting it right here, right now, so have a good time. But marriage, we know from our studies through the Bible, is this beautiful picture. This is this God-given gift that we have that is actually the thing that he chooses to give us the relationship that Christ will have with the church. Right? He, he, Jesus himself teaches us in his parables that he is the groom and the church is the bride. So we see this beautiful relationship that's played out here in the marriage bond. So if that's the case, if marriage is to be beautiful and we're to enjoy our wives and, and a happy wife equals a happy life, well then let's flip to 1 Corinthians and see what Paul has to say about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I didn't tell you guys we were going to have Bible drills tonight, but you get your exercise. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, what Paul says, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none. Well, that's interesting. So Paul's writing, he's basically saying if you're married, you should act as if you don't even have a wife. Right, no, so that's confusing to me. Let's clear this up. Let, let, let's go and look what Jesus has to say about this in Luke chapter 14. So if I flip to the left and I look and see what, what the Messiah has to say in Luke 14, verse 26, we see, Now if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus' suggestion is you should actually hate your wife. Now that clears everything up, right? I think we all have it. You should act as if you're not married and you should hate your spouse. Let's not leave it there, I don't think. Now, the Greek word, not work, as I misspelled it on the slide, is this word missio. So the word for hate is actually this word missio, which actually means to love less than. So to us, it gets translated as hate, and it seems exceedingly harsh. But what he's really trying to communicate is the first person we're to love is God, even above our spouse, even above our family, even above our children. And as a kid growing up in church, I would read this and think, man, this seems harsh, and God seems like this horrible narcissist, right? He, it seems like he just needs all this attention and affection. I'm not supposed to give it to anybody else before I give it to him. He seems like he's kind of a glory hog. Until you begin to think about the fact that it's really for your protection. So what Solomon's saying here is, make your wife happy, that's all that matters. But the question is, if we put our wife, our spouse, or anyone else up on that top position, what happens if we leave the toilet seat up? Then God gets mad at us, right? If I make my wife my God, what then happens if she is angry at me? Or... God forbid what happens if she steps out on me. Now all of a sudden, I've got a major problem with God. 
what happens if she gets sick? Or to the extreme, what happens if, if she dies? So then you begin to put it into perspective. If we begin to substitute someone, anyone else, in this position of God, we begin to have a very major issue. So this idea of putting God above others is not because he's a narcissist, but because he loves us enough, he doesn't want to see us hurt, you see. And so this is the danger that we run into anytime we place anyone or anything in his spot. Now I'll tell a little story on my wife. I don't think she'll be too mad at me, uh, especially not after that whole thing about hating her. Um, but she loves vacation. She lo- used to love to plan vacations. She loved it. And I, I dare say that it was the one thing a year she would look forward to. Now, I must preface this to say that the reason she loved it so much is because she had a husband that worked 14 and 15 hours a day, and he never saw her. So I used to joke with people that, you know, we called a 40-hour week in my house was Wednesday. So you may want to grab about your 40, I call that Wednesday, like it was something to brag about. But she would plan these vacations, and we were fortunate enough that the company I worked for, uh, they had a timeshare at the Ritz-Carlton. I put a picture of it up there on the left in St. Thomas, and we would... Uh, have the opportunity to go to these beautiful places like this and have these elaborate vacations and she'd have, th- you know, excursions all planned out and everything just to tea because this is it, right? This is what we're living for. This is God, dare I say. Now, the issue with making this uh, God, among other things, is that she uh, was married to what I put up there. We're going to learn another Greek word. Uh, she was married to, in the Greek, Pisano Kafali. I think I pronounced that right. Pisano kafali. You can write that down. This is your Greek for today. And what that means in Greek is butthead. (laughs) She was married to a butthead. But see, the thing is, I I had somebody make a comment to me last time I taught a couple weeks ago uh, when I I mentioned uh, that Job talked out of his hind end. So I don't want to say anything that offensive. So I didn't say the word butthead in a message. I actually called myself Pisano kafali. The issue was she was married to me. Right? She was taking me along on vacation. So there's no way that it was all going to go just the way she had it planned because I'm, I'm a grump. Right? I go on vacation and I've, I'm picking out problems. I'm still actually working when I'm not supposed to be working. All these things that she had set up and planned for us to do were getting ruined because of this guy she took along. The one guy she wanted to spend the most time with that was ruining the whole thing. You see. And at the end, even if everything went well, even if everything went perfectly, even at the end of the vacation, as beautiful as that place was, it still left you wanting a little more. It wasn't quite enough. It never filled that spot. And that, again, that's the danger if you're married to a Pisano Kafali. You don't want to take that guy around. You, don't, you certainly don't want to make him up on top. So anyway, I gave this great uh, marriage advice. This, I spent a long time working on this that if you want to be a good husband or wife, love Jesus, right? So I took that out of lots and lots of books. I compiled that all into one little message that if you want to be a good husband or wife, just love Jesus. Because all the other stuff, it tends to work out past that. Better get off that subject quick. By the way, you notice there's, no, there's nothing that rhymes with happy husband? Nothing. I couldn't find any sayings that rhyme with that you guys mind moving that to the next slide for me, please? All right, let's pick back up then in Ecclesiastes verse 
10, chapter 9, verse 10. Now, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. So right off the bat, what Solomon is saying now is, whatever you find to do, do it to your absolute best. That's not a bad piece of advice, right? We would tell our kids that. We would tell people that work for us that. Whatever you do, do it the best you can. And Paul even writes this in Colossians 3.23, a verse that many of you are familiar with, that whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. But then he continues on as working for the Lord and not for men. So again, that's the piece of this that the man under the sun is missing. It's not about what you're doing as much as it's about who you're doing it for. So it's a good thing to work hard. And in fact, what Spurgeon said, you've got to love the the gentleness of Charles Spurgeon. He said, man was not created to be idle. He was not elected to be idle. He was not redeemed to be idle. He is not sanctified by God's grace to be idle. So in other words, we as Christians have got some things to do, right? If you see a minister that's not tired, uh, I don't know what kind of ministry is. Most ministers out there are a little bit tired, but the thing is, if they're doing it in the right way, and I hope I'm, I try, and I forget most days, but we're to do it as if working for the Lord and not for men. That's the key. So then, in verse 11, we see, And I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the men of understanding, nor favor to the men of skill, but time and chance will happen to them all. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon him. So what Solomon continues to do is he's uh, bringing us to this, to this rousing close of this very uplifting message is it doesn't matter how good of a job you do, how smart you are, how good you are, you're still going to die. And uh, you're like a fish caught in a net. There you are. There's your uplifting message for tonight. You are all like uh, the shrimp and the shark are both on the seafood buffet. Either one of them knew they were going to end up there, but they both ended up in the same spot, both in a California roll at Shogun's. That's where you're going to end up. So again, what we see, though, is Solomon looking at this from a fatalistic standpoint. Now, fatalism says that man is powerless to do anything other than what he actually does. That's really what, what this idea of fatalism is, is, is I'm powerless to do anything about my future, so I might as well just continue on, do the best I can, and it's just a roll of the dice. Now, that's some kind of way to look at life, and yet you look around at a lot of people you know, and that's the way they're living, Right? But what Solomon does point out, and where I want to conclude with, is in the last slide, these five things that he, that he is looking at as strengths to rely on. Now, the first one we see is speed, right? The race is not to the swift. So if we were to look at a biblical example of speed, you'd look at a guy like Asahel. He's one of my favorites. He was known to run like a gazelle. Now, Asahel was one of David's mighty men. He was actually David's nephew. He was the brother to Joab. And in 2 Samuel 2, uh, verse 22, what we see here is coming off of a scene where uh, Joab and Abner, who was the general of the army of the north, they're having this 
this contest between their young men. And Joab's guys absolutely mopped the floor with uh, Abner's guys. And so they began to chase them down. They began to run after Abner's guys and chase them back to the north. And because Asahel was so fast, he manages to catch up with Abner, the general of the army of the north. And what, what uh, the interaction that takes place is humorous. In, in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we see Abner looking back as he's running, and he says, you can just imagine him breathing heavily, are you Asahel? And he answered him, I am, as they're sprinting, you know. But the problem was, is Abner is fully armed. He's got his spear, he's got all of his armor on, and Asahel, he's running in the wind. He's got no armor on. And Abner tries to convince him, hey, listen, I know that you're Joab's brother, but go put some armor on, lest I have to strike you down, and then deal with your brother. But Asahel doesn't listen. He continues to chase Abner down. And what Abner does is he stops in his place, and he puts his spear out, and Asahel runs right into it and thrusts himself all the way through. You see, so for him, his greatest strength, his speed, becomes his undoing when he doesn't listen to the advice that's going on around him. So then we look at a next thing that we might rely on, that'd be strength. And we think of the story of Samson, right? That's a familiar Bible story we learn in Sunday school. And here's this incredibly strong guy, again, like Asahel, gifted in this area by God, and yet a guy that's incredibly flawed. A man that relies on his strength, his physical strength, until the point where he's at the end of his life, He's had his eyes gouged out by the Philistines. He's had his hair cut off by Delilah. And what he says in verse 28 is, O Lord, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my eyes. So with one last push of strength as the Lord gives it to him, he brings the whole roof down on top of himself, takes out himself, and takes out I think 2,000, maybe three. I'd have to finish my reading here. But he takes out the entire party of Philistines. So again, his greatest strength becomes his undoing. Now then, we we know about uh, Solomon's life as we look at this third point, and that is wisdom. We've, We've read about Solomon for a year and a half now between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, and he says there's no bread given to the wise and Solomon has tried time and time again to find answers in his wisdom. God's given him this tremendous gift, this thing that he asked for, and God gave it to him. And he's, he's trying to find answers in this gift that he's been given, but he's forgotten the gift giver. And in 1 Kings 11, we see him uh, being led astray by all of his wives. 700 wives, 300 concubines. I mean, he had himself some parties. But again forgetting the gift giver and relying solely on the gift. He proves himself not very wise. Fourthly, then, we look at the gift of discernment, nor riches to the men of understanding. And I touched on this guy a few weeks ago named Ahithophel. Now, Ahithophel was the, great, was the grandfather to a young lady named Bathsheba. And we know the relationship that Bathsheba and David had as he uh, leads Bathsheba astray and, and you know, ends up eventually killing her husband, Uriah, and taking her as a wife. It's this whole debacle that happened in the life of David. But for this 
gentleman named Ahithophel, he sat back and watched all this take place to not only his granddaughter, but also one of his best friends in David. And what's said about Ahithophel in 2 Samuel is that the advice that he gave, he was David's top advisor. And it says in this reference I put up here, now the advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was if was as if one had inquired at the oracle of God. So was the advice of Ahithophel, both with David and Absalom. So he gave this tremendous advice, such great advice that people thought this was God-given, and it was. It was a great gift of discernment to be able to understand situations and know what was going to take place. But the issue with Ahithophel is, is he held on to this anger he had for David, so much so that when David's son Absalom came back in to try to overthrow dad from the throne. Ahithophel takes sides with Absalom. He goes along with Absalom and begins to provide him with great advice. But the story continues because as Ahithophel is giving Absalom advice about what to do to overthrow his dad and to finally finish him off, he basically tells uh, Absalom, listen, if you want to finish off your dad, Here's how you do it. You go after him right now. You've chased him out of the city of Jerusalem. While they're tired, while they're weak, while they're scared, go after him now, overtake them, and wipe them out, and the kingdom will be yours. And so he listens to this advice, Absalom does, and he, and he ponders it. But then he also listens to the advice of a guy named Hushai, the archite. Now Hushai was one of David's men that he sent back in to purposely give Absalom bad advice. And what Hushai says in chapter 17 of 2 Samuel, in verse 5, as he said, The advice of Ahithophel has given to you is not good. You know your father and his men, they are mighty men, they are enraged in their minds. They're like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. And your father is a man of war and will not camp with the people. So basically, what Hushai goes on to give him is this advice that, listen, your dad is like a caged beast. You don't want to mess with him or any of those other guys. What you should do is go back, collect all the men of Israel, and then go after them in force. Now, what really what Hushai was trying to do was buy David some time where he could get everybody settled in. The advice of Ahithophel would have probably taken David out. Well, instead, as the Lord would have it, Absalom goes with the advice of Hushai, ignores the advice of Ahithophel, and what we see at the end for this uh, this man, this great advisor, in Second Samuel chapter 17, verse 23, Now when Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, he saddled the donkey and arose and went home to his house, to his city. And then he put his household in order, and he hanged himself, and he died. And he was buried in his father's tomb. That's how it ended for a man that had provided such tremendous advice time and time again to David, but he let his own anger blind him, and, he, and it blinded him in the one area he was best at, discernment. He couldn't discern the situation that he needed to stick with David and not Absalom. He picked the wrong guy. So again, relying on his strength that was God-given rather than the giver of the gift. So lastly, we look at learning and skill. Moses, who had this tremendous uh, skill. Keep in mind that, you know, we, we think about Moses sometimes, and we can think about this guy that was just a a herdsman, a guy just taking care of his father-in-law's sheep. But we learn in Acts 17.22 that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. 
So God didn't just call a, a sheep farmer out to be the leader of his people. He called a guy that for 40 years was trained in Egypt, the cradle of learning for all of society, right? He was trained to learn. And the issue that Moses had, though, was his anger. It was the one thing that blinded him, right? That's the reason he had to leave Egypt in the first place, is he got so angry at a guy that was picking on one of his Hebrew brethren, he killed a man. That's a pretty angry guy. He probably needed to have some therapy with that. But again, we see later, 40 years later in his life, he's so angry with the people that rather than following God's lead, he strikes the rock, which God didn't instruct him to strike, and he doesn't get the opportunity to go into the promised land because of his anger. He had all the learning necessary, but he didn't have it harnessed because, again, the gift and the gift giver can't be separated. It first has to be the giver that we rely on. And so the the question I put up there for you is, what do you rely on when things get tough? Do you rely on the giver of the gifts, or do you rely on the gifts that you have solely? Because it's an important distinction for us to make. It's awfully easy to slip into that. But maybe you're one of these people that thinks you don't have any gifts, right? Maybe you look at this list and go, listen, I don't have speed like Mike Harrison. I'm not nimble like he is. He's fast like a cheetah. He'll even tell you. I don't have strength like Todd McKinney, right? He's a strong guy. I don't have wisdom like John Bacon. I, I don't have discernment like Dave Williams. That's a, that's a smart dude right there. I don't have learning and skill like Eric Parrott. He can figure stuff out. Right? I, don't, I don't have all these things. So then the question you have to ask, and, and something I want to point out, is that everyone in this room has gifts. God is not in the business of wasting his time or his creation. You just need to ask, what is your gift? And then be prepared to actually use the gift. And maybe it won't be in the way that you thought you were going to get to use it either. That's the other piece of this. For each of these guys that we're talking about, they had these tremendous gifts that are easy to point out. But the way God would have had them use it might not have been the way they laid out. Certainly not as you look at the end of most of them. And so if you're, if you're here tonight and you're wondering what your gift is, I want to encourage you to ask. It can be just that easy. And maybe your gift might not be uh, something that's as glamorous and as obvious as others. But maybe your gift is like a guy I've been pondering on here uh, the last couple of weeks, and that'd be Andrew. One of the disciples, not that thought about, not really even that considered, brother to Peter, Turn with me one last spot, and I promise the Bible drills are over. In John chapter 1, verse 40. I put it up there on the screen, but it's too small to read. So I clearly don't have wisdom. At least not with making slides. Chapter 1, uh, verse 40. And one of the two who heard John speak, this would be John the Baptist, they were hearing John speak about Jesus and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. If you want to know what Andrew's actual skill was, look at his life in the few places he's mentioned in Scripture, about seven different times. And each time what you'll see is he was bringing people to Jesus. 
He wasn't healing people miraculously like his big brother was. He wasn't the one out there preaching and laying down the word, at least not what we read about. It's possible that he was doing those things, but we don't have it recorded. The things that the Spirit chose to record about a guy named Andrew is that he was consistently bringing people to Jesus. He didn't always have the answers. In fact, as he was presented with the issue of what are we going to do with the 5,000, he didn't have a clue what to do. He just said, I don't know, but I got this boy, and there's some fish and some bread. Take him to Jesus. Jesus, you figure it out. But that's okay, you see. He knew what his gift was, and that was bringing people to Jesus. So think about that when you leave here tonight. What's my gift? And can it be as simple as just bringing people to Jesus? Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for the opportunity to share. Thank you for the graciousness of the Wednesday night crowd, how they uh, would laugh at childish humor. And, and Father, I pray that the, that the points would still be made and driven home. By your Spirit, Lord, please speak into the lives that need spoken to. Father, please open our ears to hear what it is that the Spirit would have to say. Thank you, Lord, for these folks. Thank you for Mike and Kelly getting up tonight and, and leading worship. What a blessing it is to get to uh, hang out with them and, and do this. Thank you for what they mean in my life, and I praise you for them. I pray, Father, that as we have the opportunity to ponder on the things that you put before us to do and to and, and the, just the different relationships you put in our path, that we would have, that we would have the discernment to know when to step in and when to just bring people to your feet, Lord. We might not have all these glamorous gifts, but Lord, we can bring them to you and let you do a work. So we lift all this up to you tonight. In the name of Jesus, amen.